yes, please open up to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32. Ah, Volvo, white Volvo. See it? Silver. All done. All done. Lights are on. <laughs> Thank you, Chad, for that. Genesis chapter 32, as you open up to your pages there, and if you've been following along with us, and if you haven't, you can always go back and listen to the podcast so you can catch up there. But if you remember in chapter 31 where we left off, we're just picking right back up. We go uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And as we look at this, you remember last week, there's a transition that's taking place in Jacob's life and many people's lives surrounding him. And the fact that God said to Jacob, you're going back home to your father's land and you're going to be going back to where the family lives. And we saw that in the scripture. But we remember he had to secretly get out of the land there in Padan Aram where his uncle, he'd been staying with his uncle Laban. And that's where his, he, you know, found his two wives. He was expecting only one and Uncle Laban gave him two. And he had all these kids, 11 sons and a daughter and two maids, uh, servants. I mean, it was just going incredibly fruitful in that respect. But there were some challenges within the household, if you remember, the competition between two sisters who could have the most sons to, to get the most notary from a, or a recognition by the community and, and the husband trying to, to win the husband's love. And how well that went, that didn't go, where, go well. But then he knew that Uncle Laban, Laban, you know, his uh, father-in-law wasn't going to allow him to easily just walk away because what had happened was, is, yes, yes, fine, fine, you can stay. But Jacob recognized he needed to have his own, his own wealth, his own, his own livestock, his own ability to, to survive and to, to, to live as he's going to go back to the land and of course, Laban, uh, he ended up serving there another six years, a total of 20 years. Now remember, it was only supposed to be a few days. <laughs> remember, mama said, mama to the mama boy, you go run up to Uncle Laban, you'll be there a few days. And, and after your, uh, your older brother, twin brother, calms down Esau, we will, we will we'll send a message up to you to have you come back. Well, that message never came. Because Mama ended up dying at some point during those 20 years. And, uh, and, and presumably, in, in Jacob's mind, Esau has not calmed down. He still wants to kill him for taking his, his birthright and all the, 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 the goodies that come with being number one child. Now, we find here at the end of chapter 31, they've come to the point where here comes Jacob, his wives, his kids, and all his entourage while Laban is three days away shearing the sheep, and they take off running. The word gets up to them. They chase after them about seven days. They finally catch up to them. Now they've traveled, oh, probably about 250 miles. They're just coming close to Israel, the border of Israel, the, the river of Jordan. They're up there. Um, there's a little brook that we'll see of Jabok that they're coming to. They're up at the Golan Heights. We were, you know, you're looking near Syria. They're all camping right there, and here they are coming up upon Jacob and, and, the, and the caravan. 
They realize those two men do not like each other at all. Why? Because they're both connivers. They're both liars. They're both deceivers. And he'll, you know, Jacob means hill catcher, a deceiver. And and they were reaping what they sowed on both of them. So they've come to this place, and we saw in the end of 31, that they agreed to have a vow, a, um, a covenant, a treaty that says, let's put this stone here and these stone pile here, and we're going to create this here, and we're going to agree. Jacob, you never come north again, and Laban, you never come south to hurt each one, either one of us. And God knows and will see and watch over us because we're going our separate ways never to return. Now, that's very difficult for Jacob because now Jacob cannot, he's kind of caught in between a hard, two hard places. He can't go north again, back to where he's been the last 20 years. So if his wife says, I'm, I'm lonely, I want to go back and see my daddy, he, he, he can't go back. And he had to talk to his wives before this. they took off. Uh, ladies, you have to understand, we're about to leave because God is all in this, and we're having to leave. And uh, you know once we leave, you know we're not coming back. And they agreed. They understood. But he also had a problem, which we'll see today. And that is, he had a major mountain or a wall that it called his brother Esau. Because in his mind, he's going back like God told him to, But Esau, he knows in his mind still, more than likely wants to kill him. And we're going to see how this all plays out and how God is going to orchestrate all of this. Because you can try to do it in your own power, and and certainly Jacob tries, but God is really doing the work here. So let's continue here in chapter 32 of Genesis, and it says, So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And he called the name of that place Mahananim. So Mahananim means two camps. And that is, he's now being exposed to God is involved in this move. Not only is he involved, as we saw previously, that you are to leave and you're going back to Canaan, to Hebron, where your family lives. So you're going back to the land and you're going back To your family, that's where you're going to go. But that wasn't enough. Jacob has a problem hearing from God and then forgetting that he heard from God. And we see here that God even uses now angels or messengers is the term there, messengers of God to meet him. Now that must have been an incredible moment because now he's having a flashback 20 years earlier when he saw angels. If you remember Jacob's ladder, remember the dream back in Bethuel? It's been 20 years since he had seen these angels, and that is where he accepted God. He was born again. That's when he gave his life by faith in, in, in God, because Jesus met him right at that moment. Now we're seeing 20 years later, we don't know if he's actually saw angels at all, because Scripture doesn't record that he saw angels in those 20 years, but now he sees them once again. And we see him at this place, and he recognizes, it's so significant that he recognizes that these angels are from God. He's got a, his camp, and then there's another camp right next to him full of angels. Now, you know as well as I do, God sends his angels to actually protect us, and he is sending these angels, and I'm sure these angels are with him this whole time, while he's traveling. Because remember, this is very dangerous land that he was traveling down through, these, the, you know, he didn't have the protection, in a, and it doesn't say anywhere in the scripture, where he had a lot of men armed and everything to protect his caravan. And 
So, but God had angels to protect his caravan. Because nowhere in scriptures were they attacked that we see or anything else, but this is a perfect idea as they're traveling through the desert to be picked off by these renegades. But we can see why there's no sign that there was trouble getting down to the place because God reveals that he's had this other camp, these angels surrounding him. Now we know in the scriptures in Hebrew 1.14 that God has sent ministering spirits to, that leads for salvation, that he uses his angels in the lives of people. We also see here angels are higher beings than us, but are ordained by God to be our servants to us. We see that in Hebrews 1.14, of course, but they also minister to us even as they minister to Jesus. If you remember in Matthew 4.11, God used angels to come and minister to Jesus during that time. But we also see in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 15 through 17, where Elisha, was, had, was his servant, had his eyes opened up to see the tremendous angelic host of army hosts surrounding him when he saw nothing but the enemy army coming toward him. Remember that? So God, even though we can't see God working in behind the scenes, but he could have... In times of places where you think the enemy's about to get you, there is, a t there is an army of angels that surround you. I'll just take one, thank you. <laughs> I'll take one army, one angel that's armed. <laughs> Archangel Michael would be just fine to, to keep me protected. I will take that, you know what I'm saying? And so many times we think we're alone when we're at times of war. Internally, externally. You have no idea. We have no idea what God is doing, but he does protect us. And there are times when I've traveled over the years, and I know I don't know how I didn't get wiped out by that car. Or I don't know how that, that tire that came off that 18-wheeler uh, that went right straight down at me, and, I just, and God just said, move over, and I moved over to the left, and zoom, there goes that big old tire right in front of me. That could have wiped me out. And I'm like, whoa, God, thank you. You just don't know what God's doing. But he's with you, never to leave you or forsake you. And he has an army of angels available to his call. So as we see this, Jacob is woken up and seeing there's these two camps. And there's his camp and the angels' camp. In verse 3, then Jacob sent messengers. Now he's going to send his own messengers, his boys, before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the, the, the country of Edom. Remember, Esau left Canaan, left Hebron, and went south to the southern part of the Dead Sea. That's in Edom, or his tribe that he ruled over was the Edomites. And that's where they settled, down in that southern part, south of the Dead Sea. And, and, and so he sent his messengers down to check out and find out what's going on with Esau. And he commanded them, saying, so Jacob saying to his guys, when you go down there, speak thus to my lord Esau, Thus your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. So he says, okay, guys, I need you to go ahead. I want you to make sure that you tell Jake, or Esau, my brother, that I've been hanging out with Uncle Laban up here and I've been staying until now. Now I am coming back. So send the message, let him know. But then not only tell him that he's coming back, but also let him know that I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female servants. And I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. 
Then the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he also is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. Whoa. Go down and let him know, I'm coming in peace. I've got everything I need. I've got my herds. I've got my servants. I've got everything. I don't need anything from you, Esau. I'm not coming to touch anything that's yours for the last 20 years. I'm coming with my own. We're all good, right? But he didn't anticipate um, the messengers coming back saying, oh, by the way, Esau's coming to see you. Not only hits his hand, but he's bringing his entire party. He's going to have a family reunion and, and have a picnic with you. No, that's not why you bring 400 men. That's not why you bring 400 men. They were coming to do something, and we don't know exactly, but we know that God is involved in, in orchestrating. And just like, just like God spoke to Laban as he was coming with his men to chase after Jacob, spoke to him in a dream and changed his heart so he would not kill Jacob and take his wives and, and grandkids back. It doesn't say it here, but I guarantee you God was involved to keep this, because here he shows that he was coming with 400 men. He's not coming for the party. He's coming to rule and reign, right? He's ready to take over whatever Jacob has. But interesting, look how it plays out. Once he hears this message, now I would have been to the guys. Okay, Esau's coming with 400 men. What was his countenance? Did you see him? Or did you see of him from a distance and kind of counted from a mountaintop how many guys are probably, oh, 400 men. Oh. Or did he actually talk to him? What was his countenance? Was he upset with me? Was he coming, you know, was he going to take my head off? What was he like? But they didn't tell him any of that. But in verse 7, we see, so Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. <laughs> so, so he immediately becomes afraid and distressed. He immediately started worrying, this is not going to be good. Now, what do you do if you're Jacob and you're coming back because you're in the will of God? Why? Because God said to go back. You know you're supposed to go there. So it's not a question in your mind. You heard from God directly. You're going back to this place and now, all of a sudden, you make a resistance in that move. Not just a little resistance. You didn't have a little flat tire here moment. You're having 400 men and your angry brother in your head coming to kill you. Because you haven't received a message that he's calmed down about this. And what happens now, he immediately says, okay, what do I need to do? And he divides his entire clan into two companies. Take the livestock and split it into two. Take the service, split them in two. Let's just split those two. Why? Well, let's see what happens. Why is he thinking this? And he, and, and he said, if Esau comes to, to the one company and attacks it, then the other company, which is left, will escape. So he's conniving. Okay, how am I going to maneuver here? How am I going to do this? If I get one group out ahead, as we will see, and if they attack it, my other group can, I won't lose everything. They'll take off running, and, and they won't even know that they're there because there's going to be some, you know, there's going to be separated. 
But now we see something different in Jacob's nature that we have not seen in the scripture so far. Look at verses 9 through 12, and you're going to see the very first full prayer. And take note of the elements of this prayer. Because it's a model prayer for us in regards to how we approach God in our time of, of being afraid and distressed, worried. Watch, look, look at verse 9. Then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, and the Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your family, and I will deal well with you. Let's stop right there in the very first verse here of this prayer. Notice the change here. If you remember previously, anytime he talked of God or, or any reference of God, there's always a, this God of the God of Abraham or the, the, the God of my father Isaac. And, and it's always about their God. It's only until now we see, I read this, it's now he's personalizing it. He's now, it's my God. He says right there, he says, the Lord who said to me. Now you have to understand how important this is. Because there's a lot of people who know of God, but they don't know God personally. Oh, that's the God of my, my husband. That's the God of my wife. That is the God of my grandparents. That's the God of my uncle. That's the God of, that's, that's the God of my parents. But you have to understand that God wants to be your God, your Lord, who you speak to, who you hear from. How many times have you seen there and you've been ministering to people and all of a sudden at work they say to you, Billy, can you pray and ask God to help because I just found out my mom has cancer. Or, or, or can, can you pray because my daughter is, is, is gone off the deep end? Have you ever had those conversations? Of course you have. If, you're, if, God know, if people know that you love God and you're following God, guarantee those individuals may mock you at one moment, but the next moment when they're in distress, who are they coming to? They're coming to you because they've watched your life how God is doing what in your life, and they're coming to you because they want help. And that is when you and I have the opportunity to say, it is my God, and I, he wants to be your God as well. Why don't you give your life to Christ, and then we go together to God and ask and lift up these prayers and, and petition to your, your husband, your wife, your children, your mom, your dad, your grandma, grandpa moment. It's a personal relationship with God. It's just not a knowledge base. It's not a theological kind of, you know, puzzle to figure him out. He is so simply and so revealing in such a simple way, even children, children give their life to Christ by faith. Now, if children can give their life to faith and you have not, there's something deeply wrong with your heart. It's called hardening. But today, God can soften that heart. God can open your ears to hear his voice, say, let me in. And then by faith, you trust and let him into your life. Let him be Lord of your life today. It can happen. It does happen. We all have our own testimony. 
But we're seeing Jacob's testimony. Isn't it amazing? Here he is. He's now hearing. He's heard from God. And he says, I am listening to God. He's my Lord. He's not just God. He's Lord. He's a master of my life. That's what we want. And he says, return to your country and to your family, and I will deal well with you. So what a great promise that God is. And here he is. He's talking to God. Remember, prayer is not about getting God to do what you want. It is talking to him so that your heart gets aligned with and remember what he wants. That we are to change, not God changing here. And so he's reminded, oh, who you are. You're the, you're the God of my of Abraham, God of Isaac, and you're Lord of my life. And you said for me to go, and I'm being obedient, and I'm going. And then look at what, by his word, he's, he's holding on to that promise of what God said to do. I will deal well with you. Verse 10, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two companies. So you see another part of the, of the model prayer here. He's humbly coming to God. He's not demanding. He's humbly coming. He recognizes he's a wicked man, and he recognizes that by, it's only by God's mercy that he could even come and talk to him because he knows he's not worthy to have, have a conversation with God Almighty, the God of the universe. We are to humbly come to our God, not some pompous, hard-hearted, and think like, oh, God, you're, of course you're going to speak to me. Of course you have to t listen to me. No, he doesn't. <laughs> he don't have to do nothing. We have to have a humbled spirit when we talk to him. Not a prideful, arrogant heart. And he says, I am the least of all. I know I am low. He doesn't, here's a wealthy man now. In the standards of that day, he was a very wealthy man. God has given him wisdom to do things beyond his own thing. He could have been very arrogant, which he was at, at times. He could have been very prideful, which he has been in, in through the scripture. But now he recognizes he's, he's the least of them all. And he says, I've crossed over this Jordan with my staff. I've come all he had when he went north. When his mama and his and Isaac, you yeah, go to Uncle Laban, get out of here. And he only had his staff. He had to work his hand with his hands. He had nothing. Daddy and mommy didn't, and nowhere in the scriptures gave him him any of his inheritance at all when they sent him up to Uncle Laban. That's why he worked for Uncle Laban for those 14 plus six years, 20 years total. And now we coming back, he has two companies. He's basically saying, I went up there with nothing, and look what God has done, and he's blessed me, and I'm coming back with all of this. And then what happens next? Now his petition, now he's making a statement of what he's looking for from God. He says, deliver me. Deliver me. I pray from the hand of my brother and from the hand of Esau, for I fear him lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. That's his request. He didn't sit there, okay, God, deliver me here. No, he recognized first who God is. He recognized that he is in a, a very humbled, and he, is in no, he has no right to come to God at this point. He, he's looking for God's mercies, and then I know I shouldn't even be asking, but I'm coming to you because I need to be delivered. He finally gave his request. 
to God. And then he says in verse 12, for you said, Jacob said, God, for you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So in our prayer model, as we come and recognize who God, Heavenly Father, you're almighty, your grace, your love, your mercy, I am just I thank you for everything. And you come and say, I need to be delivered. I, Lord, I, I, I'm requesting this. I am in need. And then all of a sudden, you, the part of the model of the prayer is then you to bring God's word into your prayer. Bring back the promises that God has shown you in his word. Bring them back into your prayer and repeat the promises that God has given in his word to your heavenly father. And it brings you in alignment of understanding who you're talking to. You said, you said it to my father, to my father's father, that the promise is the covenant that you had with Abraham uh, uh, and Isaac and now me, that I, my descendants are going to be so plethora of people. The tribe will be so large that it'll be like sand. You can't even count the number of people. So when I listen to that promise, why is Jacob even afraid and dismayed or distressed? Why? Because God already gave him the promise. You're going to have so many descendants you can't even count them. But then you're still afraid that somehow Esau's going to wipe that out? No, no, no. God is in control. It's by faith, not by sight. And so he's, that's where he ends his prayer there. But he knew his word. If you go back in Genesis 28, 14, he gave him his, this word. Remember in the, the promises of God in even chapter 22, verse 17, that he gave to Abraham. So there's an entire lineage of, of generation upon generation of God's promise, and he is faithful. He is never going to give up on what he said he said. He's faithful. And you need to remember when things don't look right and don't look good and things are falling apart, you must remember your God is what? Faithful. Amen? So what happens then? So he lodged there that same night and took what came to his hand as a present from uh, for Esau, his brother. And then we'll see here, he's going to start getting his present together for his brother here. Oh, what's he going to do? Give him a little, little cow? What is he going to give him? I don't know. But he's, he, look at what he gives him. He says, 200 female goats. 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls and 20 female donkeys and 10 foals. Then he delivered them to the hand of his servants, every drove by itself and said to his servants, pass over before me and but some and put some distance between successive droves. So here we are, approximately 580 animals he hand-selected. Hand-selected for his brother. And then put them to his servants and said, okay, let's get them into two companies. Let's get them all arranged in, in, in these groups. And we're going to have one go first and another one go next. And we're going to see that whole plan he's pulling together here. And he commanded 
that they were going to be broken up into these droves. Verse 17, and he commanded the first one saying, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you saying, to whom do you belong and where are you going? Whose are these in front of you? And then you shall say, they are your servant Jacob's. It is a present sent to my Lord Esau, and behold, he also is behind us. So he commanded the second, and then the third, and all who followed the droves, saying, In this manner, you shall speak to Esau when you find him, and also say, Behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me, and afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So he came up with this plan. I'm just going to kind of send him a present. Maybe he'll love it. Maybe he won't. I, and then if that didn't work, I'll send him another one. And I'm slowly just going to soften his heart if his heart is hard. I'm going to slowly do these little things to kind of help him kind of maybe won't be so angry will he kill me. So he's a little conniving here. How, whatever reason, he's, this is his plan. He's going to figure out how to soften his brother up. So he doesn't kill him. And he says right there, I will appease him. I'm going to soften him in this situation. And then he says, perhaps he will accept me. Perhaps he'll do it. Now, I find this very fascinating. If you're a leader, do you, does a leader lead from behind or in the front? In the front. So here sitting there going, I'm going to take all my families here, and these, these servants and these animals, I'm going to sacrifice them first. He's going to sit behind and take care of himself and make sure he's not the first. That's the way it's playing out as I see this. But watch what happens. Even though he might be looking after his own skin in this situation, and he's using his family to try to soften his brother's heart, because he didn't have enough faith to know that God is in this. And he did not have to do this. He did not have to do this. He just had to just trust God, humble himself, and go in front of his brother and say, please forgive me. I'm a wicked man, and I should not have done what I've done. He should have humbled himself. But he didn't do that. But watch how God uses this scenario for Jacob's good. Watch, watch how it plays in. Verse 22. Uh, did I read 21? So the present went over before him, but he himself lodged that night in the, in the camp. Verse 22. And he arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons, and crossed over the ford of Jabbok, which is just a brook that connects into the Jordan River on the very far part of the of the, the Sea of Galilee area. And he says, and he took them and sent them over the brook and sent over what he had. Then verse 24, very important verse here, then Jacob was left alone. You got to picture it. Huge entourage. Remember 580 animals approximately given to as a present. You know his wealth was even more than that. There was vastly larger than that. Of, of, of other servants and other animals and everything else that was still moving in their direction, right? 
Now all of that's gone. He now even his two wives and, and his kids and everyone who's around him and still loves him and is out away from him. He's all by himself on the east side of that brook and everyone else has moved over. In the darkness of the night of the desert. See, when you're by yourself in that room, dark room of yours or in that dark house of yours or all by yourself in that car and you're all alone, that is when God will show up and reveal himself to you and speak to you. Now watch what happens here in verse 24. And a man, it should be a capital M in your Bible for deity, meaning man-God. This is Jesus Christ himself. It's a Christophany. It is Christ revealing himself in the flesh in the Old Testament right here. And look what the, a man, Jesus does. God himself wrestled with him. He wrestled with Jacob until the breaking of day. How many times have we said, oh, are you wrestling with God? You shouldn't be wrestling with God because you're not going to win. You remember Jacob, but we were wrong on the scripture. Jacob did not say, come here, God, I'm going to wrestle you. God came and wrestled him. God will go to great lengths, and he'll even tangle with you. Now, you know the difference between wrestling and wrestling, right? Wrestling, if you've gone to high school and you learn all the techniques, and you've gone to college, you've wrestled, you know the techniques, and, and that's great. You know how hard wrestling is. If you did it in, in gymnasium, in the gym, you understand how difficult to, uh, you know, to, to wrestle formally. But if you've wrestled, I had two older brothers. We wrestled. And mom used to scream all the time, you boys, stop wrestling. You're going to break everything in the house. And the lamps, and she would protect the lamps, and, and the bodies are flying across the couches. I mean, we, we, we wrestled. And a couple times you think you're going to wrestle dad. And you're trying to take and butt heads with dad. And you're, you're lining up. We got the position, right? And dad looks at you. <laughs> okay, this is going to be fun. And he'll play with you. And he'll, he'll full Nelson and a little noogie, you know, and all kinds of things. But think about this. God is going to wrestle Jacob because he loves him that much. And he's going to wrestle him, and they're going to wrestle until the sun comes up. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've wrestled, it's a three-minute little kind of a deal, isn't it? Wrestling, you're gasping for breath, your body is contorting in every different direction, you're being flopped around and thrown around and everything else, and at the end of the three-minute, and you change positions, and you're ready right back into the fight again. And it, the match is over in minutes if you don't get pinned. They wrestled all night long. Have you ever found where you said, okay, I am, this is really, things are not going well in my life. And all of a sudden, you find yourself wrestling with God all night long in your head. All night long. You can't sleep. There's no peace. There's no rest. You're full of anxiety. Fear is ramping. 
and you're sitting there going, why can't I calm down? Why can't I get my head around this? Why is this falling apart on me? And because God's wrestling with you because he wants you to change. He wants you to change. Now remember, he had a relationship with God. He, he and Jacob had a, a relationship 20 years prior. Remember, he revealed himself there, but for 20 years, his nature did not change. He didn't change a lot. But God is, starts a work in your life. He's not going to not complete it. He's going to finish that work. And if that means him showing up and wrestling you all night long, I assure you, it's going to be a long night for you. But look what happens in the next verse. In verse 25, now when he, God, saw that he did not prevail. What? God's all powerful. What do you mean he didn't prevail? What? Wait, wait, wait. wait. He, he did not prevail against him. He touched the socket of his hip and the socket of Jacob's hip went, was out of joint as he wrestled with him. So here God is wrestling him, trying to get his attention all night long, different position, rappling him up, being thrown back and forth. And Jacob just keeps resisting God and pushing him and wrestling him back. And he's just not willing to tap out. Not willing to surrender. Not willing to, to submit to God. Because God is not going to force you He's just going to sit there and grapple with you and butt heads with you and, and, and look eye to eye to you as you're standing in positions and see who's going to move first. But God is not going to force you in a relationship. He's just going to get your attention. But you and I must be willing to submit. You have to be willing to surrender. And God says, Jacob, I need to do a work in you and finish this, continue to do this work. You must surrender all to me. You can't just give me the part you want to give to me. You have to give me all of you. So here we see that God says, I did not prevail against him. And God says, okay, I'm going to next extreme. You're not willing to, 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 to be broken here. You're not willing to, to bend here. You're not willing to tap out and surrender. God dislocates his hip. Now God is using physical means to get your attention. God did that to me. God revealed himself to me. I struggled that first six months to a year, and God ended up having to take out my muscle in my leg, and I never played volleyball again. He took that God away from me, and I never played professional volleyball again because that was that God I would not let go. And he took me out physically. And I understand. God will do whatever he needs to do, even if it means physical to get your attention to surrender. And what happened? How did, how did it play out here? Verse 26, and he said, let go of me for the day breaks. So God says to Jacob, let go of me. But Jacob responds, but he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Now, this is not arrogance. Matter of fact, go to um, um, Hosea in the, New in the Old Testament, Hosea chapter 12. It's, I think it's page 622 or so in your Bible. 
to get to it here. Isaiah 12. I'm going to say 12. Yep. Um, Hosea 12. Pass it. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, chapter 12. And um, I love the turning of the pages. That's just really cool to hear that up here. Uh, and I'm just going to read there verses 3 through 5 of chapter 12 to show what exactly was Jacob's mindset when he says, I'm not letting go of you. You need to bless me. Right here. Look, it tells us in this, in this, in this, in this book. He says, he took his brother by the heel in the womb. Remember, that's speaking of Jacob here. And in his strength, he struggled with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel, capital A, Jesus, and prevailed. He wept and sought favor from him. He found him in Bethuel. Remember, we talked 20 years earlier. He found God. And now here he is 20 years later, and he's struggling and wrestling with, with, the, uh, with Jesus. And that is the Lord God of hosts. The Lord is his memorable name. Here we see this night. He's struggling all night. Jacob, at this point in his life, is sobbing and weeping and holding on to God because of the struggle that God was wrestling with him. Struggling and wrestling and breathing and, and, and all this stuff. And he's weeping and crying and says, God, please. When we see you, you bless me. He's not running. He's asking, God, I don't want to leave. I need you. What You change my life here. And then we see the transformation take place through this text. Look at the next verse. So he, God, Jesus said to him, what is your name? Now, that's a strange response. No, no, it's not. Because in this culture, your name was who you are, nature, your nature. It's who you're inner, who you are. And he says, what is your name? And his response was, he said, and he had to admit, Jacob. Jacob, the conniver. I'm Jacob, the deceiver, the liar. I'm Jacob, the one who manipulates and everything and a very, very smart man because he was, he was very smart and brilliant. God gave him wisdom to do business and he's, he created himself a huge wealth. He's very knowledgeable in the things that God has given him the ability to do. But he was still that, that moment prior to this wrestling. He was a conniver, a heel catcher. He was Jacob. That's what his name meant. God was saying, who are you? And Jacob responding by confessing to God, I am a sinner. I am a wicked man. I'm Jacob. That's where it starts. Repentance. A simple acknowledge, I am, I am a sinner. That's what Jacob just did. I'm Jacob. And now because of that confession, that, con that, that repentance there, what, it was a change of heart. Look at how God then responded to that confession of his sinful nature. In verse 28, and then God said, he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Meaning you have changed. Israel means governed by God or God rules your life now. Isn't that a beautiful saying? 
that you were so selfish and so self-contained, so self-confident, and then you were ruining your life, you don't even know it. You're ruining everyone around your life, and you don't even acknowledge it because you're so selfish. Then God comes in, and he's going to wrestle and reveal and, and shine light of what and who you are by nature, and that's what he did to Jacob, and all of a sudden, Jacob admits it, he confesses it, and God says, great, now you're governed by me. Now we can do something with you. Now we're going to move forward. And watch what happens here. He's changed. Why? It started with that personal prayer to God. He's now broken through the wrestling. He's now surrendered to God. And then what happens? Then Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you asked about my name and he blessed him there. He's like, I need to know this is real. This change is who I'm surrendering. This is real. What is your name? What is who your name? And God says, oh, you know who I am. I've revealed myself. I don't need to say my name. And he blessed him right there. He gave him rest, peace for his soul. He, he took him from an old life, the old nature, and now it's a new nature. He's transforming him and working in his life to be a person who is governed by God. And that is a beautiful, wonderful transition taking place right there. And so how did Jacob respond? Verse 30, so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, which means face of God, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Preserved means I'm being saved. I'm saved from who I am. Remember, when you get saved, you're saved. But then you, then through your sanctification process, you're being saved. And when you get to your glorified state, you're saved. So there's this transition of God doing a work in your life. And it's a continuum. And we see that I have come and I'm being, and my life is preserved. I was about to die. I was about to lose everything. And God preserved my life. Why? Because he was willing to admit that he's a sinful man that needs to change. And only God can change a man. There is no other way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. There is no other way. And then we see here and just as he crossed over Penuel, which is the same word, Peniel or Penuel is the same place, the sun rose on him. The sun rose on him. I love that, that visual. It's a new day dawning. It's a new beginning. His mercies are new every day. The past is the past. The sun is now rising. And what happens here? And he limped on his hip. Now, can you picture this? This is an incredible picture if you think about this. He just took and sent everybody over across the brook, moved him on, and he's all by himself. He was fine when they left. And now he comes the new day, and the sun's rising, and here he is limping toward his family. What happened to you? 
What happened to the over the night? I mean, that's what happens when you struggle with God overnight. You wake up, you look haggard. Sweaty, tired, exhausted, but a change took place. A newness will start. New fruit will be bearing from your life from this moment. And here he is limping. And that limp will be a memorial to him the rest of his life of what he and God wrestled right there in the wilderness. And his life was changed because of it. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle of that shrank, the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. Now, this is, a, this is an Orthodox Jew moment here that they, do, they don't eat that uh, part of the, of the animal because of this, uh, of this moment with Jacob and what God did to his hip. But that's not part of the, it's just a dietary rules under that religious system that they applied to themselves. But, but, they, but that's now generation upon generation upon generation. Even today, they remember what God did in Jacob. And Jacob did not wrestle with God. God wrestled with Jacob. God was the, insti uh, the instigator, the, the, uh, the aggressor, because he wanted to do a work in Jacob's life. 